1: It seems I know not why I am so sad, it wearies me, you say it wearies you, but how I caught it, found it, or came by it, what stuff it is made of, whereof it is born? I am to learn, such a want with sadness makes of me that I have much ado to know myself.
0: Hello, everybody. That was Antonio from the opening lines of The Merchant of Venice. Welcome to The Plays the Thing. I am Tim McIntosh.
3: And I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sarah
4: Jane Bentley.
0: Welcome to Act One of our discussion of The Merchant of Venice. Hey, you guys, welcome back to The Plays the Thing. How is everyone doing?
3: I'm doing great. And I'm so excited because I've never actually been on The Plays the Thing with Sarah Jane. So this is like really exciting for me. I've been so looking forward to it. Me too. And the first time that we've had a, well, I've had a three-way
4: conversation. So should be, exactly. and they're rich pickings in The Merchant of Venice.
0: Yeah, they really mm, are. So this should be fun. Um, we have several issues that are going to present themselves really quickly about The Merchant of Venice. The first one, if um, listeners are at all familiar with the play, is there's kind of like this looming critical question about the possibility that, that maybe our author, William Shakespeare, the great humanitarian, might have been maybe a not so closeted anti-Semitic. Um, is that possible? So that's one of the questions that we're gonna talk about because the treatment of Shylock in this play who is a Jew, his treatment by the author opens the door to that kind of criticism. So that's something that we're going to talk about in the play. But the play is packed with fascinating characters. For me, one of the most fascinating characters is Portia. Hmm. I think she's such an interesting... um, She's kind of... And she inhabits the second narrative of the play. The primary narrative is about this relationship, this money-lending relationship between Shylock and Antonio. The other narrative is about Portia and her relationship with Bassanio. First um, blush responses to Portia. I'd love to hear from both of you, Heidi and Sarah Jane. Do Do you like her? What do you think of her?
3: Yep, I love her. She's fabulous. She's one of Shakespeare's best heroines, in my opinion, hands down. Why do you, why do you think so? Uh, well, I'm sure we'll dig into it throughout the throughout the play. I mean, off the top of my head, she has one of the best speeches, not only in Shakespearean history, but in literary history with the quality of mercy is not strained speech. Um and she, like many Shakespearean heroines, is uh, far and away the better man, so to speak, in her relationship with a man. Um, and uh, not to mention she is, you know, as Bassanio says, rich. she's rich, she's beautiful, she's wise and virtuous. Uh, she's she's got, she's got it all. Sarah Jane, what do you think of Portia? I love her as
4: well. I think, yeah, you've done her justice there. I want to put forward... Um a theory that maybe she represents the Holy Spirit in the play. Oh, interesting.
3: I definitely want to hear more about that. Yeah,
4: perhaps it's something we can draw out as we keep going. I think that, um, especially in the courtroom scene, she intercedes on behalf of Bassanio and Antonio. Um, And as you say, there's something um, supernatural, superb about her. She's from a, a different and parallel world almost to... Um, Venice. She's from Belmont, which is a place of romance, beauty, love, whereas Venice is very much a place of tragedy and tension um, and a place of want and lack, really, whereas Belmont is a place of abundance. And I think in our first meeting with her in in Act 1, Scene 2, she is a kind of parallel to Antonio. We see Antonio as sad and then we see Portia sort of saying oh, my little body, I'm so weary of this world. And she has this joking relationship with Nerissa, which is similar to the interchange between Antonio and Gratiano. So there's a really interesting parallel there. I also think she's an amazing embodiment of this idea of being in bondage, but being free, which is an idea Mm -hmm. that the modern audience can struggle with so much because nowadays I think we believe if we're subject to anything, then we're not free. But of course... That's not that's not the Christian idea of freedom. And the play really explores bondage and freedom. Everyone in the play is bound in some way. And Portia is, of course, bound by her father's um, casket. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, rubric? What is it? What's the word for it? it? Contract?
4: It's kind of like a dowry or a, a marriage mm. proposal in a way, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, I think I think she's yeah, she's incredible and there's there are depths to her character that we'll discover as we go.
0: Yeah. I would like Sarah Jane um to hear the audio of, of Porsche's introduction, but I want to wait and do that until we've kind of got a big picture of the story. And Heidi, I wonder if you'd be willing to just kind of walk us through a cursory overview of like what happens in this play, and who are the characters that we need to be need to be paying attention to?
3: I, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, this is like all Shakespearean comedies. Uh, there's a complex plot, and it's uh, one of those plays I think that behooves you to know beforehand it's really kind of a relief to talk about Shakespeare uh and because on the flagship show we're always so careful not to give spoilers but spoilers don't matter at all in Shakespeare in fact it's always better to know the plot uh even before you dig into the play uh so yeah I'll I'll, I'll, I'll give an overview skipping over some of the more um and the weed stuff that happens in the secondary plots. But I'll go over the main thing. Uh, So the play opens uh, in act one with a conversation between a young merchant, Antonio, the title character, the Merchant of Venice, uh, and his friends. Uh, And his particular friend, his best friend, you might say, Bassanio, he needs money in order to court the beautiful heiress Portia of Belmont. Uh, And Antonio wants to help him out, but he doesn't have ready money. He doesn't have liquid act. Assets. He doesn't, you know, have ca- the cash right now. Uh, his money's tied up in investments, which are trade ships out on sea. So, on the strength of these investments, uh, Bassanio is able to borrow money from a Jewish moneylender, Shylock. Uh, and Shylock has a grudge against Antonio for a couple of reasons. One, he's a Christian. Two, he he's also moneylender. But he lends without interest, which drives the uh, interest rates down, which means Shylock doesn't make as much money. And then also Antonio has made disparaging comments about Shylock's Jewish faith uh, and heritage. And so for those reasons, Shylock hates Antonio. Uh, But he agrees to the loan to Bassanio for 3,000 ducats if Antonio will uh, sign off on the loan, agree to promise a pound of flesh if Bassanio defaults on the loan. So, uh, meanwhile, Portia lives in beautiful Belmont, the green world of the play, uh, Mm -hmm. where there's money and uh, uh, nature and art and beauty. um, uh, And there, Portia receives her suitors, but there is a catch. Uh, According to the terms of her father's will, uh, Portia can only marry the suitor who chooses correctly between three caskets. Picture them like, um, you know, jewelry boxes, sealed caskets, Uh, one of lead, one of silver, and one of gold. Uh, The man who chooses correctly which casket was Uh, stipulated in the will, uh, may have her hand and marriage and the failed suitors must agree to never marry at all. So there's something at stake for everybody in this choice. Uh, Portia doesn't like any of her suitors, except she remembers exchanging meaningful looks with Bassanio at some point in her past. Um, So Bassanio, of course, wants to woo her, but will he choose correctly? Um, Of course he does. And the two marry, which is not the Climax uh, scene of the book, which of the play, which we'll get into, I'm sure. Uh, so, to further complicate things, uh, the Jewish Shylock, uh, his daughter Jessica falls in love with uh, a friend of Antonio and Bassanio. His name's Lorenzo, and he's a Christian. Uh, and they elope together, which further deepens the grudge that Shylock holds against uh, Antonio and then other Christian young men. He calls them the Christian husbands. Um, So when Antonio's ships are lost at sea and he cannot pay his debt, uh, then Shylock demands his pound of flesh. So Portia disguises herself as a young male judge and urges Shylock to have mercy to renounce his claim for the pound of flesh, but he refuses. Uh, So the judge, which is Portia in disguise, uh, declares that He is indeed entitled to the pound of flesh, uh, but not any of the blood that comes with the flesh. So then Shylock is caught. He can't redeem his debt. Um, He can't collect it at all. So Portia further um, uh, condemns him at that point for conspiring against a Venetian citizen. Uh, And then there's some legal maneuvering, which I know that we'll get into when we get to that point in the play. Um, And then Shylock is uh, convicted and. he is condemned to convert to Christianity and to accept his daughter's marriage. Uh, and he is allowed to keep a portion of his wealth, uh, which is supposed to make us feel like this is just, um, and, uh, and then he agrees that he will then will it to Jessica and Lorenzo after his death. Um, so then the story ends with kind of a rift and reconciliation in a comic way over rings. Uh, we'll, we'll get there between the young married, the three young married couples of the play, which are Portia and Bassanio, Gratiano and Nerissa, and Lorenzo and, and Jessica. And that happens in the final act. Um, Antonio finds out that his ships, after all, are safe, and so he is wealthy uh, again. And then everybody celebrates their good fortune, and that's the end of the play. Um, so it's pretty complex play and there's a lot of pieces and there's a lot happening that unfolds over the course of the play. And we didn't even get into all of it.
0: When I was rereading this week, this play, I read that phrase, a pound of flesh, mm-hmm. and because it's passed into common parlance now, like we just use it as English speakers and you for- I forgot how terrifying that thread is like a pound of, like, wait, where it's going to come from the, cho- the place of your choosing a pound of flesh that sounds positively horrible. That's absolutely terrifying. And I think what a thrifty way by Shakespeare of introducing the genuine possibility of an agonizing punishment from Shylock to... Antonio, does that phrase still um, does it unnerve you two at all? Or am I the only one that gets unnerved by that?
4: No, I think we probably should get unnerved by it. It's, it has um, a kind of metaphorical significance now where the real um, gory reality of it has kind of passed away. So if someone wants their pound of flesh, you, you sort of think they're, ex, they're being extortionate. I would say, in the kind of idiom of the language now. but and of course, the thing we forget in the play is that that's that's a joke. Shylock enters into a bond for a pound of flesh for a merry sport because he wants to ingratiate himself with Antonio. So he says, "I'm not going to charge you interest. I won't ask any money from you. So the pound of flesh is meant to be the sort of the lighter option, if you'd like. that there's no There's no real expectation that this is ever going to be paid. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the twist of the
0: of the play, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Heidi, you and I tend to get the plays that have green worlds. Mm-hmm. We've done, um, oh... Uh, As You Like It. As You Like It, and before that, The Tempest both had, they were kind of set in or around green worlds, and we're doing a third. Do you mind explaining... Um, to people, we use what we mean by that phrase.
3: Sure, it's a it's a really common. Uh, device in Shakespeare in almost all of his comedies, there's some kind of green world, meaning there's uh, this contrast within the play, two physical settings within the same play, one of which is a, a city uh, where law and um, usually some kind of masculine hierarchy rules with an iron fist. Uh, and um, and then Somewhere within that city world, uh, the gray world, so to speak, um, there's a decree handed down that keeps young lovers apart. Whether it's from a father figure or a law of the land, something like that, uh, that keeps these—that's the block to young love. And in order to overcome that block, then the the, the young lovers somehow either magically or, uh, just within the course of events end up in a second world, the green world, so to speak, which is like a, a land that's ruled by mercy and, um, beauty and music and in which the, the law of the land, the law of the gray world is somehow suspended and anything can happen. Yeah, You know, in, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, it's an actual magical place. Uh, and, um, in this particular play, it's, it's Portia's estate. Uh, It's the place where she rules. And that's an interesting twist uh, that, that here's a place in which the, one of the young lovers actually has uh, some sort of authority to create the green world for herself. And, and, you know, Portia's pretty special actually, even among Shakespearean heroines. And this is one of those ways. Uh, But the, the, yeah, the green world is a place in which kind of that law is suspended where anything can happen. It's a regenerative place, a place where growth and love, where things come together and unify in harmony, whereas in the contrasting world, usually the world of a city, uh, there's division and there's uh, an authoritarian uh, kind of um, the, um, the imposition of, a, of, of an iron will. Mm-hmm. It's um,
4: Northrop Fry's theory, isn't it? The green world of comedy. I yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It's re- I really, I really um, love how it's slightly complicated in The Merchant of Venice because when we get to the green world of Belmont, the romance is still controlled by the will of the father because yeah. Portia isn't completely free to do whatever she likes because her father's, even though he's dead, still has this limitation on who she can marry. And so Shakespeare's obviously decided to complicate things a bit in this play. It you isn't play as clear-cut as something like um, Twelfth Night or As You Like It. Or Midsummer,
3: yeah. Um, Which I think I like this play because of that, hmm. Sarah Jane. I love what you're saying. There's, I mean, he... Shakespeare plays with his own rules Mm. and breaks his own rules like he abides by them and breaks them they're still there but they get complicated and then you know tangled up and untangled and this in this play um it yeah I think that this green world of Belmont it has this sense of everybody wants to be there not just because of the world itself but because Portia's there Mm. she has this Uh, compelling quality to everybody. Everybody comes to her, you know, or suitors all come to her from all over the world. Uh, So it feels like this exotic court in which people are gathering. Um, But this also speaks to something else that you pointed out, which is that the the sense of bondage, that Mm -hmm. everybody in this play somehow is bound to something that they're attempting uh, whether consciously or not, to escape from um, and to create their own identity, and so much of that bondage is connected to identity. Um, and Portia, as a young as a young woman, she's bound by her relationship with her father, and there doesn't seem to be any question that she's going to follow his will, though even beyond the grave. Mm. I find that interesting, and that's that's really central to to comedy as well. I think
4: that often in the Green World. Of comedy, it's about how the children behave when the parents aren't around. And um, Antonio, if we if we go to the source that Shakespeare used for the story of Antonio and Bassanio, Antonio is more or less like a father figure or a godfather to Bassanio. So, and obviously, Shylock is the father of Jessica, and they run away to Belmont to get away from their father's wishes. So. That's often what we see in the green world of comedy is the absence of parental authority, which is then reintroduced at the end of the play, usually at the wedding, where the parents come to the wedding and everything is unified and the two worlds come together. Mm-hmm. So in, in this play, Portia goes from being under the authority of her father to being under the authority of her husband. And what's so fascinating is that, you know, she has all this wealth and autonomy, and yet at the end, she submits everything to Bassanio and gives him everything, her whole kingdom.
0: While we're talking about Portia, let's listen to um, the first time that we meet her in act one, scene two. She's in a conversation with Nerissa. So in the audio, Portia will be the first person to speak by my troth, Nerissa, my little body is weary of this great world, which is, as we mentioned, mirroring the kind of unexplained sadness of Antonio. And the section will conclude with Porsche's lines, so is the will of a living daughter curbed by the will of a dead father.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So let's listen to that. This is uh Porsche, the first time we meet her in Act One, Scene Two. By my troth, Narissa, my little body is a weary of
1: this great world. You would be, sweet madam, if your miseries were in the same abundance as your good fortunes are. And yet, for aught I see, they are as sick that surfeit with too much as they that starve with nothing. It is no mean happiness, therefore, to be seated in the mean. Superfluity comes sooner by white hairs, but competency lives longer. Good sentences and well pronounced. They would be better if well followed. If to do were as easy as to know what were good to do, chapels have been churches, and poor men's cottages, princes' palaces. It is a good divine that follows his own instructions. I can easier teach twenty what were good to be done than be one of the twenty to follow my own teaching. The brain may devise laws for the blood, but a hot temper leaps o'er a cold decree. (laughs) But this reasoning is not in the fashion to choose me a (laughs) husband. Owe me, the word choose. I may neither choose whom I would nor refuse whom I dislike. So is the will of a living daughter curbed by the will of a dead father.
0: So that was Portia uh, talking to Nerissa. It's a a funny bit of text, isn't it, Sarah Jane?
4: I really love the relationship between them. It's so playful. Nerissa is the, I suppose, a kind of employee or like a lady in waiting to Portia and, and she really keeps portia grounded portia is ready to float off in this kind of melancholy and Nerissa says uh you know yeah it would be it would be really um tough and hard um for for uh you if if you weren't so excessively wealthy and um abundantly served in in all areas and um She's really sharp and witty, Nerissa, and the relationship between the two of them is a a great source of tension and humour throughout the play, especially when we get to the courtroom scene. And um, I just think it parallels beautifully with Gratiano's kind of mockery of Antonio in the previous scene, where Gratiano says, come, come, you're not not really sad, you're just pretending because you want to look a bit clever. And um, there's, from the beginning, we're being sort of encouraged to think of this as a comedy, I would say.
0: Oh, but it's such a complicated play. It's so, we're encouraged that way. It just, like, the stakes feel pretty high. There's so much, for me, there's so much higher than in a play like As You Like It. That's why it's just a little bit difficult to think. And for me, it's really, when I think, when I see a Merchant of Venice ad on Netflix or on Amazon, I don't think, oh, yeah, that feel-good, back slapping comedy, Merchant of Venice.
3: <laughs> Do you guys think of it as funny? Oh, it starts out really funny. I think Sarah Jane's completely right. That whole dialogue between Narissa and Portia is hilarious and probably even funnier to us because we may have had conversations just like this with our girlfriends in college about guys we were dating when we just like talk, you know. Very respectfully about the Imago day in each of them tim it's
4: it's a locker room conversation, right? Yes. <laughs> no one's listening yes. and it's all the things you'd say that you hope no one else exactly. ever and it
3: is hysterical yeah. like it's really funny, um so it does, and I think that's one of the reasons why this play is so enduring and um it's it starts out so funny and it has all of the elements of this like classic Shakespearean comedy. You've got, you know, the block to love and you have the father's will and you have the green world and you've got the movement between the movement from friendship, same sex friendship to heterosexual love. And like the, all of these really important elements of a comedy. And then you just have problems with it. Mm-hmm. There's just, this is a, very problematic play and a lot of levels, and it is disturbing. And it has this element of melancholy and sadness that runs through it. But then it also has, to your point, sergeant like these really hilarious scenes that, man, they're witty and just sharp.
0: I'm, I'm going to seize on. Yeah. I'm going to seize on something that Heidi just said: the heterosexual friendship. Um, and I assume that you're talking about the one between, especially between Antonio and Bassanio, Heidi.
3: Yeah, I was thinking about that or even Portia and Nerissa. Nerissa. Uh, there's like a that's group right. of guys mm-hmm. that's not, and but of, Antonio and Bassanio are in the center of that. And I really want to hear Sarah Jane talk about the source material for it and, and hear some of your thoughts on that. But there's like this crew of like guys, if you, and, and then, Um, Like I can almost see them like playing pickup basketball or whatever. They're just, you know, they're like the hot guys. And then there's um, a few eligible young maidens that have this lovely relationship with each other too. Uh, To your point, Sarah Jane, that you made there, there's the locker room conversations, but there's a real attachment um, between these women as well. So, and, and in every Shakespearean comedy that happens. Like you have a a bond, a sisterly or brotherly bond that's broken uh, by the entrance of the opposite sex. And then everything gets really complicated for a while and then everybody pairs up properly, right? And then you have in this play, a triple wedding. uh, And then then there's a few plays when you have somebody left out. And that's one of the problematic elements of this play because you have the merchant of Venice, the title character left out. Mm. He's the saddest character and he's the title character. This is not a classic comedy.
4: Yeah, it's, it's called a history in the actual title in the folio, which is another complication. But um, yeah, I think you're right. That marauding bunch of guys are the sort of the young, eligible, wealthy, young aristocrats of Venice, aren't they? And um, the production that I saw of this was by directed by Rupert Gould in the Almeida many years ago. And in it, Nerissa and Portia were sort of hosting a game show. They were Southern Bells and they were hosting um, a game show where the contestants, the, the prize was they got, they got to go on a mm. date with one of them. And um, that sort of heightened the tension as well and added to the fact that it was it was comic as well as being serious because the the marriages that ensue are real marriages of true love. So it's interesting. It's one of those plays that flips back and forth all the time, I think. And the early intimation of this is when Solano is talking to Antonio about why he's sad. And he brings in the image of the two-headed Janus, which is that comic mask that's used, the god who is happy and sad. And and that's the nature of the play, I think, that Shakespeare's showing that tragedy and comedy are two sides of the same coin. And I think that's something he explores quite often in his plays. So um, we have different characters here who push the action towards each genre. And someone like Jessica is very downbeat and melancholy, but then someone like Gratiano is always the fool and trying to pull things back the other way.
0: I want to ask you guys this question. Um, We've kind of touched on it a little bit, but why is this play titled The Merchant of Venice and not maybe like Christopher Marlowe's play? He wrote The Jew of Malta. Why is this play not The Jew of Venice or why is it not The Heiress of Belmont? Why is it named after Antonio?
3: I... I'm glad you asked that question. I, I think it's an ongoing discussion in uh, um, in literary scholarship uh, over the centuries. This is definitely a debated point. There's some textual evidence that The Merchant of Venice does refer to Shylock, uh, that I mean, the original title, Uh, that was uh, filed officially by Shakespeare was the Merchant of Venice or the Jew of Venice. So there is some evidence that he intended the Merchant of Venice to refer to Shylock, but that's not the way that the the folio title, is it the quarto title or the folio title that went in? It's like, you know, the really long one that's like the Merchant of Venice and his cruel treatment by the Jew and- It's the 1600 um,
4: version, which is- is from the quarto. It's from the quarto. Folio 16. So that was
3: three years after the play was original, you know, was originally performed and written in 1597. Um, so it's a relatively early play, which is kind of interesting. It was the, the, the comedy that was written after midsummer, which is Shakespeare's first great comedy. So this isn't one of his late romances. Um, you know it's not measure for measure another extremely problematic play uh but anyway to get back to the question at hand i think that there's um if you leave aside kind of that potential that he really did intend it to refer to shylock i do think there's some good reasons why it would refer to antonio um and that's more the accepted um uh inference and i i think part of that is because he is the 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 hinged character within the plot. Everything does trace back to him, to Antonio. Uh, he speaks the first words of the play. He brings in the the uh, emotional tone of the play, which is structured like a comedy, but feels like a tragedy. Um, and he, uh, he is the linchpin for all of the major plot points. A note about Shylock, and we're gonna talk a lot about him, Shylock is one of those characters that I don't know if Shakespeare, when he wrote it, who knows what was in his mind, and I'm not you know, terribly attached to author intent at any time, but um, I don't know if he knew the life that Shylock would take on. He's one of those characters that almost feels too big for the play. He dominates the play, but a lot of the reason why he dominates the play is because of the cultural history since the time of Shakespeare with the Jewish people. Uh, and so he's taken on in mo- in, con- in contemporary times, in modern times, uh, the weight on his shoulders of all of that accumulated history that happened since Shakespeare wrote him as a character. And so I... Th- Think even, I think in Shakespeare's time, he wouldn't have inhabited such a big space. Um, and so much of what we feel when we encounter him in this play is because of that accumulated cultural history since that time. Um, so I also think the merchant title fits for the transactional nature of uh, what's going on in the play with a pound of flesh, uh, even, and, and even with, uh, with Portia and the choosing of the proper casket, there is this constant sense of transaction. Am I going to choose right and get something for it? Um, and then also my final point about this before I turn this over, um, is that it uh, the contemplation of justice and mercy that takes place in this play—that is the major theme of this play—is tied to uh, the merchant himself. And Portia becomes then a resolving force, but not the central character. It all kind of goes around Antonio, which is interesting. Then he ends up single at the end, and I really want to talk more about that with y'all. So that's my, those are my thoughts. What about what about the two of you,
0: Sarah Jane?
4: Heidi's covered really comprehensively that um, a lot of the things I've been thinking about. So I'll just echo some of that. I think that um, the mercantile concerns of the play are the central sort of tension of the drama. The play is really about venturing. That's a word that comes up again and again. Um, We learn, don't we, in the Bible that the kingdom of God is like a merchant who seeks the pearls. And when he's found the pearl of great price, he goes and sells everything he has in order to buy that. And I, I think this is a type or an idea or a proverb that Shakespeare is working with. And Antonio has to venture, Portia has to venture, Bassanio has to venture, um, and that's that's why that title is appropriate. And also because Venice is is a kind of cosmopolitan, a mercantile center of, of Europe, maybe even the world. Um, around about this time and earlier. So the setting ties in then with the title and absolutely agree with Heidi that the accumulated cultural history that has come since the um, the kind of late 1500 date of this play has perhaps changed the audience response to Shylock. And I mean, as you said, Tim, the, the Jew of Malta was also on the stage around about this time maybe that might even have been a a case of disambiguation that Shakespeare didn't want his play to be confused with
3: Marlowe's play. Um, Can you talk a little bit about Marlowe's play if you don't mind tell us some of the you know for for our listeners who aren't super familiar with that particular portrayal of of the Jew, Jew.
4: Yeah all I would say is that Marlowe's portrayal is far, far harsher. It's much more of a caricature. Um, His Jew lacks complexity. The things that he does are far more brutal and barbaric. And so um, Shakespeare's portrayal of a Jewish character is is so much more sophisticated and sympathetic than what Marlowe puts on the stage. So it's, I would say, better (laughs) drama. Um, So, Yes, and to, to Heidi's point as well about Antonio being central to the bond the bond plot, that his bond for Bassanio is then kind of negotiated and relieved by Portia. What's interesting is at the end of the play, Antonio is bound again, and he is bound to... Um, for the surety of the marriage between them. So, although, as you say, he is single, he doesn't have a marriage partner at the end of the play, he is bound into the marriage of Bassanio and Portia. So, he is the linchpin, he is the anchor of the play. And if we don't gravitate towards that idea of venturing and, and merchants, then I think we've kind of missed something of what the play is actually about.
0: Yeah. Here's a question, Um, Shylock, of course, is Jewish. Does Shylock have to be Jewish, or could he be sort of um, a particular ethnic representative of an outsider? someone who doesn't belong in this particular culture. And I'm actually gonna spice up my question a little bit with uh, back-to-back performances of two really great actors who, th- who have rival visions of, or have rival views of the answer to the question that I just asked. So um, Patrick Stewart is gonna do the first monologue. And it's the monologue where um, Shylock is kind of speaking at the end of 1-3. And he's speaking to Antonio and kind of recalling to Antonio the way that he has treated Shylock. So Patrick Stewart will read the monologue first and then after David Suchet. Who himself is Jewish. Uh, listeners may know him as Perot in a lot of uh, the Agatha Christie, I think BBC productions of Agatha Christie's mysteries. Another great actor, Jewish, Patrick Stewart makes the argument no, he doesn't, Charlotte doesn't necessarily have to be Jewish. He's just a particular ethnic represent- representative of an outsider. And David Suchet is saying, uh-uh-uh-uh, no, it's got to, he has to be Jewish. There's something in with Jewish about it. So let's play that audio. And then I would love to hear you guys weigh in on that question. Does Sherlock have to be Jewish or is he just an outsider? Here we go. First, Patrick Stewart and then David Suchet reading the same monologue from... Merchant of Venice, Act 1, Scene 3.
2: Signor Antonio, many a time and oft in the Rialto, you have rated me about my monies and my usances. Still have I borne it with a patient shrug, for sufferance is the badge of all our tribe. You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish gabardine, and all for use of that which is mine own. (laughs) Well then, it now appears you need my help. Uh, go to then. You, you come to me and you say um, Shylock we would have monies. You say so. You that did void your room upon my beard and foot me as you spur a stranger cur over your threshold. Money is your super <laughs> What should I say to you? Should I not say have a dog money? Is it possible a cur can lend three thousand ducats or Should I bend low and in a bondman's key with bated breath and whispering humbleness say this? Oh, fair sir, uh, you spat on me on Wednesday last. You spurned me such a day. Another time you called me dog, and for these courtesies I'll lend you thus much monies. Okay, good.
1: Change hats, change hats. I'll put on my overcoat. Overcoat and stick. Overcoat stick. Yeah. Makes me feel old. Right. Signor <clears throat> Antonio, many a time, and oft in the Rialto, you have rated me about my monies and my usances. Still have I borne it with a patient shrug, for sufferance is the badge of all our tribe. You call me misbeliever, cutthroat, dog, and spit upon my Jewish gabardine, and all for use of that which is mine own. Well then, it now appears you need my help. Go to then. You come to me and you say, Shylock, we would have monies. You say so. You. To devoid your room upon my beard and foot me as you spurn a stranger cur over your threshold. Monies is your suit. What should I say to you? Should I not say? Hath the dog money? Is it possible a cur can lend what three thousand? kids? Or shall I bend low and in a bondman's key with bated breath and whispering humbleness say this? Fair sir, you spat upon me Wednesday last. You spurned me such a day. Another time you called me dog. And for these courtesies, I'll lend you thus much money.
0: That was David Suchet reading Shylock's speech in 1-3. You call me a dog and for these courtesies I'll lend you thus much money. It's a great speech. It's a great speech. Um, did you guys hear the difference between the two speeches? Like they, 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 they. The actors made choices, and for me, they really showed up according to kind of like the beliefs they have about the play. Patrick Stewart, no, he's just an outs. I mean, he he's an outsider. David shit. no, he's indelibly Jewish. He, ha- you know, he has to be played as a Jewish. And even though our listeners couldn't see it, um, David (laughs) Suchet, he kind of, he really plays up the venom from Shylock. He, during some of the plosives of the speech, he is really in the face of, uh, Antonio and he's kind of, it's, he's almost spitting at him. It's really kind of jarring. It's, it's, it's tremendous. It's wonderful. Sarah, Jane, does Shalek have to be Jewish or can he be an outsider?
4: He absolutely has to be Jewish. Can I just declare my interest here in that I am a huge David Suchet fan. He um, he has recorded the NIV and I listen to it when I'm cleaning the house and driving places. So that I'll just say that I'm not coming at this from a neutral position. Um, there's no way that this play can work if... Shylock was written by Shakespeare as just the other, as Patrick Stewart claims, and I would love to listen to the debate that that um, Suchet and, and Stewart have about this. I'll give you several reasons why this is the case. First of all, we have the setting of Venice. Um, Shakespeare's really interested in Corriott's Curiosities, which is a a kind of travel journal about Venice, about the details of Venice. And in Venice is the first ghetto in 1516 where the Jews lived in segregation. So Shakespeare's clearly interested in this specific detail in the same way that he's interested in Othello as a hired mercenary um, and a Moroccan. Shakespeare has a kind of fascination with these detailed, interesting characters, from Venice, who indeed often visited London, although probably not Jewish characters, as the Jews were banned from London from twelve ninety, banned from Britain. Um, so it's something that Shakespeare can explore in the context of Venice, uh, which is really interesting. So if Shylock is just an outsider, then why does Shakespeare go to the the? care of creating characters, not just like Shylock but also like Othello, both specific individuals from specific exotic places. Um, I think that Stuart's view is, is arrogant because he reduces the um, characterization simply to them and us, um, us being Antonio and presumably he thinks Antonio is um, a kind of white male um, member of the patriarchy or whatever, which of course is not true either, because Antonio is specifically a royal merchant of Venice. He's not just, you know, the same as, I don't know, someone on the trading floor in the stock exchange in London, for example. And, and so the idea of the other, I think, is is problematic. It comes from um, the, th- the theory of phenomenology, which is the study of what appears. It's a study of experience, a study of of what consciousness is. So the idea that Shylock is just the other means that Shylock is just um, a negation of what the dominant uh, social cultural norms are. So it kind of denies him any real character or existence of himself. He only exists as an opposite to someone like Antonio or Bassanio. And I think that the play shows this is not true. or else how would Shylock through history have, you know, in a way been able to bear the weight of history as he has done? He's, he's clearly a character in his own right. And I think if we accept this theory of the other, we get into the problem um, of denying that our identity is something that is given to us through being image bearers of God. And instead it becomes something that we can just invent. It's something that society invents. And and then um, you can basically make up who you are based on how you feel in a particular day or time. And so I I absolutely disagree with Patrick Stewart about this. I also think he's wrong because Shylock is not outside of the main political and economic currents of Venice. He's in the Rialto, At the start of the speech. He says many a time and oft in the Rialto. Um, he has come across Antonio. And so he clearly is someone who is known throughout the city as a money lender, someone who a royal merchant such as Antonio might go to to borrow money. So I think that Stuart is completely wrong on that point as well. Shylock is part of the, the multicultural and multi-ethnic fabric of Venice. He's very specific. He's even wearing a costume that denotes him as um, Jewish, and the costume is referenced in the language of the play. So he, he's not just any kind of foreigner. He wears a gabardine cloak, and the Jews either had to wear a, a red hat or a yellow turban, depending on what their Jewish heritage was. And Shakespeare would have known this from what he'd read. So on many, many counts, what Patrick Stewart says is not true. It's also historically and politically inaccurate. The, there are debates in Elizabethan England about usury. There are debates about allowing the Jewish people to come back to England to trade. The Jew of Malta is also being performed uh, contemporarily. So all of those things are dismissed if Sherlock is just any kind of foreigner. And philosophically, I think it completely disregards the way that Shakespeare constructs his anthropology. He doesn't just see self as constructed by society, otherwise his characters would be really boring. His, his characters often strive against um, mm-hmm. the social norms and that's where the drama is generated. So I think, you know, if, if we also say that Shylock is just any foreigner or any other, then what do we do with Jessica, the gentle Jewess, who then becomes the Gentile, who was a Jewess, and her conversion is completely um, lost from the play as well. So those are some of the reasons. I think the main reason is that theologically and typologically, if we pretend that Shylock is just the other, we miss the anagogical reading of the play, which is that we have this deep biblical allegory running through the play. The play is full of biblical references to the Geneva Bible that Shakespeare often used, where we have Shylock as the devil. He's referred to as the devil nine times in the play. We have Antonio as a type for Christ, Bassanio as the prodigal son or every man who's searching for his kind of um, salvation, I suppose. And Portia, who comes in as this kind of interceding um force and power of life towards the end of the play. So we we would miss all of that amazing um biblical illusion and imagery if Shylock is is any kind of it's just foreigner. The other. Because yeah, because Shakespeare here is really interested in old covenant and new covenant law uh-huh. and, and the fulfillment of the law through mercy. And um I just think Patrick Stewart, he can't have understood that when he read the play.
0: To me, that's the heartbeat. All of your reasons are compelling. That one, to me, carries the heaviest weight because um, that's, it, it's just so... The theological difference between the Christians and the Jews in this play shows up with such particularity that to just try to efface the particularity um, in Shylock and make him kind of a, a potentially a blander um, character that's not associated specifically with the Jewish community in Venice, I think just robs the, I didn't, it's not even subtext, it robs the text of so much meaning. It just kind of bleaches a lot of the meaning out of the play
4: which is what critical theory often does. But I'm happy to be persuaded in the other direction. If anyone wants to make the case that Shylock is a kind of cipher or avatar for for anyone um, on the periphery of society.
0: Heidi, you, you ready to take that on?
3: I have. I, I, I think she's right. <laughs> I think he has to be Jewish. Uh, and I, I think any other reading of it is reductionist and ignores Shakespeare within his time Uh, and I also think that uh, the point that Patrick Stewart is making has some validity to it but uh, I in the sense that what he is saying is that Shylock's he was villainized he's villainized for being a Jew, which is an outsider character. And he ends up taking on the role of a scapegoat within the play. And that is very true. And so I think that there is some validity to the idea of, of him as being core to his character, being an outcast. If he was a fully accepted Jew, that also wouldn't work. So the otherness is important to Shy- to our understanding, the proper understanding of Shylock within the within the play. Uh, but you can't have, you can't, you don't have to erase one to have the other, right? They, they go hand in hand.
0: Yeah. yeah, that was well said.
3: I don't know if it was. It was like stumbled all over the place, but I got it out eventually. <laughs>
4: You're right though. Venice, yeah, Venice is a place yeah. full of characters who are other if we're going to use that yes. um, kind of modern term. And that's why it's such a great place to set a play. And, and kind of parallel to London in a sense because of all the trade and the merchants going in and out bringing their wares and their cultures from all over the world.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and it was illegal during Shakespeare's day to—I mean, you—you you couldn't be a Jew in England. No. Jews were Jews were illegal. So, if there were Jews in England, they were practicing their faith in secret, mm-hmm. uh, or they were con- they were converts to Christianity. Yeah, and it was also usury was also illegal, which is another reason why the audience
4: would perhaps um, be less sympathetic towards Shylock because in England it was only later, I think, that you were allowed to actually charge interest on a loan and it couldn't be above 10%. So usury was seen as this awful, unnatural crime, which is what Antonio is arguing with Shylock about
0: in these opening Mm -hmm. scenes. I want to say it was not terribly long after Shakespeare's time that usury was legalized in England. Is that right? Like within 100 years after, anyway. Anyway.
4: Yeah, no, it was it was sooner than that. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was it probably in Shakespeare's lifetime. Okay. Um, yeah, up to ten percent is what Parliament decided. It's in the late fifteen hundreds, I think.
0: I have two questions that I want to close Act One with, and they're kind of practical questions. Um, one of them is, Sarah Jane, you um, at your school have performed Shakespeare plays or various other plays. So first question I'm gonna ask is, is this a suitable play for a teacher who wants to put on a Shakespeare play at or for their school? Second question is, do you have recommended uh, movies or performances that our listeners could see or hear online that you really think like, do a really good job? But first question's first. Suitable for a high school production? Putting aside the question of um, whether you they can actually perform the play, is it a good idea to perform? Is this the play?
4: Yeah, I'd be really interested to know what was kind of behind the word suitable if, if someone came to me and asked me that, if I was thinking of directing this play in a school, because... I mean, is there a suggestion there that in some ways this play is unsuitable because children or young people shouldn't be engaging with matters of um, cultural and racial tension because it's too dangerous, right? Or
0: just in the world?
4: Yeah, and so if we make those things taboo because they're too potentially offensive or that we're going to get them wrong, then I think we end up with a generation of young people who who never encounter these tensions. I, either in a fictional context um, or, you know, in a play. And then when they do come across these kinds of tensions out in the street, they, they are completely unprepared to deal with anything in a way that's mature or sophisticated or compassionate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think we, we should definitely
0: would you, would form this play. Would you play any caveats, Sarah Jane, um, about, because because it is... A, put, a play that is potentially I wish you could come up with a better word than um, it's potentially fiery, you know would you would you add any caveats to a director who wanted to take on the play? like
4: yeah I would say that it's it's not a play that or any other play either that should be directed in order to teach people lessons about race. Uh, it's a very entertaining and brilliant play with many um, different plot lines, lots of great parts, um, great lines, (laughs) fantastic settings. I I don't think um, should be put off by, I don't know what you would be put off by with this play really. I think so long as it wasn't being used to push a particular political agenda, um, the play is is a beautiful work of art and, and should be treated with, the reverence that it deserves.
3: Mm. I completely agree with it, uh, with that. I think that it is such a shame in the modern landscape that, um, that we would avoid putting on a play with, with the, the, the courtroom scene, which is just one of the most redemptive scenes mm. in all of literature, not just in Shakespeare. Mm. Like you don't, avoid that because you're trying not to create a controversy you you lean into that yeah exactly and exactly Heidi you're so right and the point of the play
4: is is restorative redemptive, joyful overall with a few kind of aching questions that are left with the audience so yeah that we shouldn't be afraid I think
0: productions that you guys like and would recommend uh let's start with have you seen al pacino as shylock
3: i have i loved that i i am um i i appreciate i like the fact that we're several centuries down uh from this play and i i think that that how shylock in this play does kind of bear the weight of the uh the the tragedy of jewish history is just creates this pathos like it, it's incredible that shakespeare wrote a play in 1597 that today can bear the weight of all of that accumulated cultural history from that point until now mm-hmm. and to do it accurately and reverently and just beautifully so that if, if you prick me do we not bleed speech is So, so beautiful and and so compelling and carries so much pathos with it. And, and I think Al Pacino nailed it. I love that performance. And I really like the modern, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of modern and contemporary. Uh, you know, if you're true to the text and you put your Shakespeare into a contemporary setting, carrying the weight of contemporary issues, I'm totally for that. I'm not a traditionalist when it comes to Shakespeare, Shakespearean performances. Uh, I like it when they kind of Take on contemporary issues and 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 put the and superimpose the play over that because it works. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's so wonderful about Shakespeare is that he really is for all time, and so um, I'm a big fan of the modern. Uh, interpretations of Shylock. Um, I'm less interested in whether or not Shakespeare himself was anti-Semitic and more interested in how the play can hold up to those issues today. Uh, and, and I think there's lots of them, but I, the Al Pacino version, I think, is excellent. I think people should watch yeah. that one. I don't know. What, what, else, what else do you guys recommend? Yeah, I, lo- I love that
4: one. I think it's really interesting how the director in that chose to... Um, he sort of cleans up the christians shakespeare in the play includes a lot of the faults of the christian characters um but the director in the play uh, in the film kind of cleans those out and tries to i suppose increase the gap between the um the christian characters and shylock the jewish character and i wonder is that because I just wonder why he did that. Is that because he doubted that people would sympathize? Hmm. That's a a sort of frightening thought that the audience would be that callous. Um, It's a a superb version of the play. I love that one. Um, I definitely recommend watching that. The other one that I've seen, I don't know how listeners would get hold of it. There's definitely a trailer on YouTube. It's the Rupert Gould version that I mentioned earlier, which was set in Vegas, and it was superb. It was so fun. was so the whole play was actually set in a casino in vegas
0: with all your free time you don't want to snoop around the internet and try to dig that out do you
4: (sighs) i don't know where i would find it um
0: it sounds great
4: especially the courtroom scene in that scene antonio is um put on a sort of guantanamo bay style trial where he's actually wearing an orange boiler suit oh and it's It's really poignant and it was terrifying to watch. I remember
0: being in the audience quaking at that moment. Oh, wow. You guys, it occurs to me while I've been listening to you that ordinarily when I'm on The Plays, The Thing and Close Reads, I'm one of the commentators and every once in a while I'm kind of also host a little bit. But but I think... For this series, I, I'm gonna step a lot closer to being the MC because you guys are so good. I, I like just, just listening to you guys talk to this the last hour. I kind of want to slide into the role of um, MC and maybe every once in a while kind of playing devil's advocate. So I'm announcing that on
4: you're very, you're very Brechtian, Tim. I like the. Wait, like, the Brechtian style of same war kind of the thought monologues. I love it.
0: <laughs> I don't know any other way to do it. I'm not, I'm not like trying to like emulate old Brecht or anything. It's just kind of like, yeah, with the package. <laughs>
4: You're just immersed in it.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about in the subsequent four acts.
3: No, right? I feel like we've been talking for five minutes. It barely yeah.
0: scratched the surface. flew past. So, sometimes they feel like, oh man, yeah, we've been talking for an hour and a half, and sometimes it feels like we've been talking for ten minutes. This one felt like ten minutes. So, um, I, I want to remind everyone that a great way to get in touch with us is on the Close Reads Podcast Facebook page. If Sarah Jane can, in fact, dig out the version that she's talking about, that's where it will be posted. I, Sarah Jean's already shaking her head That's not going to happen, Tim. It's not going to happen. Um, I posted a 1973 production starring Laurence Olivier as Shylock in the Close Reads Facebook page. So if you want an, a free version, I, I think it's, I'll call it adequate. It has Laurence Olivier. It's not going to be bad. Um, but I think that if you're willing to spend a couple bucks, Al Pacino as Shylock on Amazon prime and maybe elsewhere, it's worth, it's worth a couple bucks to watch that. I think it's a really outstanding.
4: Have you seen the David Suchet one out of interest? Does he play
0: Shylock? I know, I I know that he Mm. did it at the RSC, but I don't know that there's a recording of it. Mm. If there is, boy, I would love to see it. Maybe that maybe. Okay. Listen, Sarah Jane. If you dig for yours, I will dig for that one. This I vow on the air. This I I will dig. You guys have any closing thoughts, things to look forward to in act two?
3: Um, Yeah, I do. I think that one of the really interesting questions about this play over the centuries has been Portia and Bassanio almost take a... um, almost like side character role like their love story is a it's not like it it has all of the marks of the traditional Shakespearean comedy except for the emotional weight within the play Mm. and and I'm 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 curious about that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about that because it almost feels a little bit second. I mean, the casket scene is magnificent, and uh, and I mean, there is this drama, and um, you know, Bassanio's name is Bassanio, and one of the literary terms for a test of worthiness for a man is the basanos, and so he is he's literally named after this idea of the test of his worthiness for this woman, um, and so there's. I, I'd say just watch for that and then form impressions of it. And I'd, I'd like to talk about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, does, does it seem, I'll just tell you first breath how it occurs to me. It seems like Bassanio in a lot of ways um, <laughs> is sort of a, he's an instigator for the plot. He needs the money to get with Portia. He wants to be with Portia. He has to select amongst these different caskets to get Portia he's on trial but Portia and Antonio his light shines on uh Portia because we because we want her in the spotlight I think Shakespeare wants her in the spotlight and for me that's part of the reason why their relationship feels I think you used the word it doesn't maybe it doesn't bear a lot of weight in the play I think that's
3: yeah it doesn't become the focal point it doesn't become the convergence point towards which the emotional uh, weight of the show or the the emotional trajectory of the show moves towards yeah. and and that's curious how do you how do you become a secondary character in your own love story yeah. right that's that's a question about this play that the that that is posed i think by the play and i'm really curious about that
0: how do you become a secondary character in your own love story that's I'm gonna file that one away, Heidi. <laughs> Poster. Poster time, Sarah Jane.
4: I I'm looking forward to discussing that as well. And the thing I love about Act Two um, is this this trial of the caskets, the fine heavy metals, and the characters who come and choose. What they, what they select. I think um, there's much to be discussed there uh, in terms of what's being represented, particularly in terms of Venice itself as well, how Venice is this city that has this beautiful veneer and underneath is dust and ashes. And there's this amazing poem actually by Robert Browning called A Toccata of Gallopies. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's, it's about this kind of the fragility of Venice's beauty and wealth. The, the final stanza is... Dust and ashes, so you creak it, and I want the heart to scold. Dear dead women with such hair too, what's become of all the gold? Used to hang and brush their bosoms, I feel chilly and grown old. Mm. So I think that there's more going on with the caskets. It's not just about choosing Portia, it's also something about the kind of lifestyle of Venice and what people Mm. value and prize and what it says about their own character. Ah. Mm
0: I want to thank everybody for listening and invite you one more time. Find us on uh, Facebook, the Close Reads Podcast. And if you have questions in anticipation of the sixth episode, which is traditionally a Q&A, then it's not too early to start posting them now. But we'll send out another call when we get late uh, in these this series of podcasts. I'm Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White and for Sarah Jane Bentley, thanks for listening to The Play's The Thing and happy reading.